1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is a special episode coming to you a little early, because so many things are happening in the world that you cried out for us to respond to, that we thought, why not get up early on a Sunday morning and try to provide you with a little of the perspective you won't get from those Sunday shows. because uh, Really, who can sleep in- anyway? Yeah, exactly. And, and we're groggy and we're willing to show it. Um, uh, joining me here in the extended virtual third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, Is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, David Sanger of the New York Times, Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And of course, the first thing on our list is the recent addition to the United States government, which will begin in just a few days, of one of our most interesting, colorful characters, um, I Am the Walrus the mustache of John Bolton, followed by the rest of John Bolton, uh, an arrival in this administration, which has caused many uh, people who are normally fairly cool of temperament, uh, some alarm. In fact, former uh, or, or, or sometime visitor to our, our show, uh, Colin Call, Um, a former senior national security official in the Obama administration, uh, responded, we're all going to die. Maybe. Not sure. Um, Let's start with David Sanger. Should Colin calm down, or are we all going to die?
2: Well, those of us who do deep state radio with you, we're not going to die. And the reason is that we invested in those silos that you know we talk about so often before bolton's appointment so we're good
1: okay rosa brooks rosa brooks silos are us
3: (laughs) yes i'm glad i could help
2: she saved us all and that's why we're broadcasting to you now from you know what's happened basically since bolton's appointment is that rosa has begun looking for silos that go even a little bit deeper um are we gonna all die out of this um I would say that the chances (laughs) that we ended up.
1: That's that's not the question (laughs) they're asking on the Sunday morning shows, but that's the one everyone
2: wants to to know. Sure. So um, the chances that we end up in some kind of armed confrontation, I did not say war, some kind of armed confrontation that lasts for some period of time with either North Korea or Iran, you have to assume the betting pool on that has gone up somewhat. And that's just based on what John Bolton has said, and he's said a lot, in the years leading up to um, uh, his appointment uh, on Thursday. Um, To some degree, it is less surprising that uh, McMaster's time came to an end after just a few days after he had been in for a year than that— President Trump, a man who got elected saying that the Iraq war was a huge mistake, that we should never have done it, we have no interest policing the world, ended up hiring a guy who may be one of the last Republican holdouts saying that he actually thinks the invasion of Iraq was strategically a fine idea and worked out just fine. Um, So that's number one. Number two is He's the one who wrote an op-ed in the Times in late 2014 that had the headline on it, to stop Iran from getting the bomb, bomb Iran. So he wanted to go after Iran just as they were closing in on the nuclear deal that he is going to pull a plug on uh, with President Trump, we would bet, on May 12th. And on North Korea, uh, he's the man who has said... um, Yes, we should have the two presidents meet briefly. It's to explain to the North Koreans that they should immediately deliver all of their nuclear infrastructure, weapons, whatever, to the to our nuclear facility in Tennessee. That's the only thing we're going to say and discuss. They'll hear the ultimatum. We'll go away. Um Which is not usually the way most diplomats consider conducting a a negotiation. They usually say, you know, you give X, we give Y, things like that. That's not what he's interested in in doing here. And um, he's been a big advocate for preemption. Now, he said the other day that all the things he said in the past don't matter. The only thing that matters right now is what President Trump thinks. The difficulty. That's very comforting. Isn't that comforting? Um, But the difficulty here is that we have always sort of counted on the triumvirate of um, Mattis, Tillerson, and McMaster to sort of calm down the president from his uh, occasional outbursts um, and emotions. And at this moment, only Mattis is left out of that group. And he's not over at the White House all that often. Uh, so, um, what you've got is the last man that uh, Donald Trump will hear before making big decisions uh, is going to be um, John Bolton.
1: Could be the last man Donald Trump ever hears if what you say is true. You know, one of the things <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that was a big hit out of last week's conversations was the idea of Rosa covered glasses Um, uh, at people wanting to see the world through your eyes, Rosa. I
3: know, because it's such a a happy, cheerful way to look at the world. It
1: is a happy, cheerful way to look at the world. Um, Listening to David, um, what's, what's your reaction? What was your reaction to this Bolton appointment?
3: Well, no, as 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 David said, I immediately redoubled my my silo research efforts. Um, I you know, I think David is right. This dramatically increases the odds of uh, some sort of military confrontation uh, with North Korea or with Iran, or who knows? We I'm sure we could find somebody else um, to get angry at and so forth. um i I It is a cheerful outlook on the world because it means that every day that the sun rises again, I am pleasantly surprised. So I'm always happy. Um, So today, too, I'm happy. Um, And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to stay with that with that cheerful approach to the apocalypse. But no, it is it is it is I'm. I'm speechless in this <laughs> because we, how many times has Donald Trump done something we've all said, oh, it's shocking. And, and you sort of run out of words to describe the shockingness and the awfulness. And, and I really don't have the vocabulary to express this. As David said, um, John Bolton seems to represent the polar opposite of what Donald Trump claimed he wanted. Um, The only thing the two men appear to have in common is a aggressive bellicosity that is entirely unrelated to any objective reality out there. Um, I think it's worth pointing out a a couple of additional things about John Bolton. Um, One being it's not just that he supported the Iraq war, lots of people supported the Iraq war. it's that there have been many allegations that he was actively involved in trying to suppress more accurate intelligence that was out there that would have cast doubt on the claims of weapons of mass destruction. You know, that, that he he was not simply, oh, gee, I was given wrong information uh, uh sorry about that. And of course, he's not sorry. He's made it very clear he's not at all sorry about that, but that he was busily trying to make sure that the accurate information never saw the light of day. Uh, he was loathed by his Republican colleagues uh, during the Bush administration. Uh, he could not get confirmation. He was a recess appointment as ambassador to the UN because uh, President Bush could not get the votes to get him through during during the regular term. Uh, he didn't have enough Republican support either.
1: From a Republican Senate?
3: From a Republican Senate. Uh, he was roundly denounced by various Republican members of Congress, uh, and, and he was famously the object of efforts by everyone from uh, then Secretary of State Colin Powell to uh, then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice to freeze him out of all discussions because he was viewed as a irresponsible loose cannon who was willing to lie to get his way.
1: And in fact, the president uh, who, who appointed him later said that he didn't believe he was credible.
3: Right, precisely. Um, so, so this is this is a guy who, in many ways, was a, a pariah even amongst the neocons, who many people saw him as representing, uh, because he was viewed as as dishonest and irresponsible. And now he's going to be our nat- he's going to be our national security advisor. Well, um, Let me
1: let me let me turn to Evelyn here as we sort of continue this first first round. One of the things, you know, I mean, you know, Rosa's view of the world is is typically bleak. And I'm sure that at some point in the not too distant future, we're going to get big sponsorship offers from Xanax and Zoloft um, uh, and 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 other drug manufacturers who feel listening, listening to Rosa could boost the sales of their drugs Tr- um, Rosa may be our new optimist. Yeah. Be- <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, by the way, we wanted.
0: Oh, yeah. no, I don't think I'm about to help much. But go on.
1: Well, we wanted <laughs> we wanted Corey to join, but there was a timing issue here. But 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 the the reality is, and and I I want to get this as gritty and insidery as you can get. You know that when you talk to people, Republicans, some hardline Republicans. They can't stand this guy. They think this guy is really dangerous. They worked with him. A hundred U.S. ambassadors signed a a document saying he should not be the national security advisor. I mean, he should not be the U.S. UN ambassador back back in the day. Um, Since then, it's gotten worse. This is a guy who has worked with Cambridge Analytica using the 50 million... Stolen documents that 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 or identities that came from Facebook. This is a guy who's been on tapes with the Russians, uh, you know saying, you know you have more freedom in Russia, and you should you should, you know uh, you know he's he's been tied into everything that's wrong with the Trump administration and excoriated by everybody who knows anything about national security. Let me start by this question, Eva. Do you think I'm overstating it?
0: No, I mean, it's it's clear. You talk to any first of all, just open up your Washington Post today. You know, George will has a column. The second most dangerous American, he says is John Bolton. So, and why? Because the guy is going to be like General Mike Flynn, but, someone who's bureaucratically savvy, who has foreign policy experience. you know, By all accounts, he's, he's, a, he's a very smart man, um, and people know how he plays. He plays down and dirty. He, he's the guy that um, Carl Ford, who was a longtime um, intelligence analyst at the State Department, he testified in front of Congress saying that John Bolton's a kick, kiss-up, kick-down guy, Um, And that's not just, you know, how he interacts with people, including his Republican colleagues, but how he works, how he gets things done. So I think uh, Republicans are also aghast. They would have much preferred someone like Steve Began, who was the other guy who was being discussed as a potential replacement for H.R. McMaster. I would venture to guess most of us on the call know Steve. Steve is a responsible guy. He served for a long time as a senior staffer in, on the Hill in Congress. He's worked for Ford Motor Company now for over a decade, I believe. You know, he would have been a solid, very tempered man. He also worked in Russia, understands the Russia threat. Um, so I think you're, you're right. And, you know, David is right about uh, Bolton and how he, he he will approach policy. I mean, I think the other thing I would add is that this is somebody who is not only, you know, quick to uh, reach for the military, you know, weapon weapon of weapons of war. But he's also somebody who's a unilateralist, and he's deeply skeptical of arms control and, of course, negotiated nonproliferation. And those are also things that are very troubling at this moment in time. You know, he was known to exaggerate potential nonproliferation threats. Um, he seemed to have. Almost fabricated one pertaining to Cuba and biological weapons back when he was in the in the Bush administration as um, undersecretary responsible for nonproliferation and arms control. So he, there are, there are many and, things and by about the way, his is,
1: as a footnote. When he he came up with this uh, unfounded uh, claim about Cuba, uh, it, he tried to fire a couple of people who wanted to point out that it was unsubstantiated.
0: Right, and that gets back again to his you know, his his modus operandi, how he deals with opposition, how he plays dirty to get his way. Of course, it backfired on him because, and and I'll just close with this, you know, you mentioned that he was um, effectively sidelined by his superiors. Well, he was sidelined in the North Korea example, first by the North Koreans who said, they called him a bloodsucker and scum because he had, granted, spoken the truth, but he had- You
1: know, we we should get some North Koreans on this podcast because- (laughs) They always no. cut to the chase. You know, Sanger dresses it up in New York Times language. But I think blood-sucking scum is, is pretty much where we're all headed here, and we're just not saying it.
0: Well, anyway, I, I mean, look, anyone who treats their colleagues the way that he reportedly treated his colleagues um, doesn't, doesn't deserve any, any praise in my book, um, leaving aside his policies, and they're pretty bad. Um, so, I, I, that, and then just to finish on North Korea, on our side, basically the the Bush administration, his his uh, colleague said he can't he can't participate in the negotiations. So, this is not uh, somebody who's going to moderate the president's more volatile policy perspectives.
1: No, or, or anybody else's. You know, I mean, one of the things that uh, you know has been reported in in, in for example the Israeli press was that bolton you know pressured them to go after the iranians you know but you know he 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 just he seems to have this 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 bloodlust but ed you know I, th- I think we've established here that this is somebody who um strikes fear into the hearts of people who know about foreign policy and national security on both sides of the aisle he's there's a kind of a bipartisan consensus that this guy is absolutely cray cray bonkers so bonkers batshit you know we, you know and, and whatever but 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 let's 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 take it a, a step deeper um one of the things that that troubles me when i read these analyses in newspapers is people say things like well this is the emerging trump doctrine and i don't think there's any trump doctrine I, you know, i in fact i got into a Twitter exchange yesterday with Walter Russell Mead, who I respect a lot, but who was saying, well, you know, he's not an isolationist. He's an interventionist. And he has, And I'm like, he's nothing. He, you know, he views the whole world as like a suit. You know, foreign policy is like a suit. You know, he wants to wear what looks good on him. It's about how it all looks in the mirror. Everything is about how it looks for Trump. So I don't think he's got a, a, a foreign policy core. But I do think there's a trend and the trend from Trump's instincts that's now going to be amplified by Bolton's instincts and, and Pompeo's instincts. And, 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 and frankly, the instincts of Peter Navarro and, and some of the people on the economic side is to essentially try to reverse every underlying core impulse of U.S. foreign policy for the past 75 years. Which, in the wake of World War II, focused on creating an international system, uh, f- using that international system to avoid conflict, uh, using international institutions as fora to avoid conflict, w- giving credence to the rule of law. You know, uh, you know, John Bolton has said you shouldn't even honor international law when it feels good. You know, when it, you know, if you think it's got a short-term benefit because. It it's you know it's, it's a, like
3: a gateway drug. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. It, it, but you know, to me, that this is this is kind of profound because Trump has stumbled and and impulsively lurched towards a policy that has gotten us out of the Paris Accords, gotten us out of TPP, uh, has us renegotiating NAFTA, has us attacking alliances, has us attacking the UN has us now contemplating unilateral action, has us probably by May 12th pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. This is a profound reversal in U.S. foreign policy, um, not just for a generation, but for the past three generations. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that.
4: Uh, Well, to to, to agree. But I mean, I don't I disagree slightly that there isn't a Trump doctrine. The word doctrine might be, uh, you know, way too sort of formal to describe these sort of loose impulses that Trump has. But if you remember an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal that Gary Cohn and H.R. McMaster wrote about a year ago, uh, it it basically set out – not their own personal views, I don't think, but Trump's views on a sort of Hobbesian world um, of dog eat dog, where there's no such thing as win-win, where if one person wins by definition, that means another loses. Um, uh, And in which zero sum is very much the operating principle on trade policy, on diplomacy, uh, and on on all the issues America faces in its engagement with the world. And I do think Trump has actually consistently held that that global perspective for many decades without reading up on it without refining it without any sort of historical knowledge to back it up these are his continuing he's, impulses
3: he's, he's like a natural
4: he is a natural, and he he views the world world as a suit in another sense too, as a lawsuit. And you win a lawsuit, or you, or you lose it. You don't settle out of court. Um, so, John Bolton, you know, I think uh, in his very open um, contempt for international deals. Uh, I mean, he, he spent a long time as 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 you all on this on this uh, uh, podcast know. Uh, trying to undermine the International Criminal Court and and to punish countries um, bilaterally that did sign up to it. Uh, he's got um, he's probably the most um, uh, the personification of the sort of Hobbesian worldview that Trump has that that holds the, the very idea of international um, cooperation um, and partnership and alliances in contempt. Uh, so I think I think there is, uh, I think it's worse than it looks, that, that Trump does have a sort of what you can loosely call a philosophy here. And he now has the people in place uh, to prosecute it. The, the other side of this uh, is, you know, the economic change we've seen recently from Gary Cohn, to Larry Cudlow. Now, uh, uh, Brad DeLong put this brilliantly. Um, uh, the, the, the economist Brad DeLong put this brilliantly. He said, appointing Larry Cudlow to head uh, the National Economic Council is a bit like appointing William Shatner to, to command the Seventh Fleet. Uh, this guy, you know, is, is a TV personality um, who's been auditioning, like Bolton has cleverly been doing in recent months, auditioning for the job on TV. Um, they know. What part to play? What part they've been auditioning for, um, and they've done it well, and it's worked. And that part is the Hobbesian role that 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 Trump wants to see. That's that's the that's what's so disturbing about this. Is this isn't random? I don't think. I think it's uh, I think it's Trump filling his administration with Trumpians.
1: Well, it's interesting. It it really does go to a kind of zero sum worldview. You know, either Trump wins or Trump loses, and that's the lens through everything. But David, you've actually spent some time with Trump. As we've often joked, you were the guy who helped him come to the America First terminology.
2: Oh, you're, I thought you were going to let me forget about that, but I guess. Well, I
1: <laughs> no, no chance of that. But, you know, it's actually more troubling because the last time we had any kind of foreign policy, impulse in the united states that was akin to this was in fact in those days of america first and while he may have stumbled into it whether by you know by virtue of this kind of instinct ed talks about or not uh we are certain there seems to be a kind of a coherent although altogether frightening direction that we're headed since you've talked to him i'm just wondering what your thought was on on what ed just said
2: well, I think the big question uh, – and I was thinking this is as Ed was talking about what Trump's doctrine, philosophy – I don't think there's – I don't think we're anyplace close to a Trump doctrine because that would require him to have sort of consistent uh, impulses on these things. I, I think the big question in the appointment of Cudlow, in the appointment of Bolton, uh, in the appointment of Pompeo is this – Is he actually veering as hard right as those folks talk or is he doing this as Steve Hadley, the former national security adviser under President Bush, who dealt a lot with Bolton, uh, says, is he doing this because it's a, a, as Hadley put it, a piece through strength uh, move or as we might put it, a piece through convince people that these guys are crazy enough to actually shoot something off. And that's what I don't know, because uh, Trump certainly has a negotiator's sense for trying to make the other side think you will do anything to win. And the question is, even if that's his intent, if you then spill into some kind of event in the world, as will come up, in which somebody's taken a shot at an American aircraft, a uh, naval vessel or something, whether it's been a cyber strike, whatever it is, the president will then have to go react. And even if he appointed these people to get negotiating leverage, he may find himself relying on them as he's got to make a judgment about whether to use force. And so I think in his mind, he just wants to appoint the toughest sounding people he could find. And in iteration one of that was, I know, I'll get a bunch of generals. Generals are tough. Well, he discovered over the past year that one general, General McMaster, lectured at him too much in his view and gave him all of these sort of subtle choices during briefings. And it was all terribly annoying. Uh, And then uh, another general, John Kelly, puts these restrictions on him and doesn't want him to tweet, wants to review who he's calling and who's what kind of information he's getting that didn't quite it's not going well with his style and he can't quite figure out Mattis at this point. so uh, he is now turning to people who just sound very hardline.
1: Um, well Rosa, let me try to comfort you a little bit on this. Um, uh, on one of the Sunday morning shows. Steve Hadley, who I think we all hold in high regard, the former Bush National Security Advisor, said that people shouldn't worry so much about John Bolton because, after all, it's President Trump who will ultimately be the one who decides if the U.S. goes to war.
3: Comforted? Uh, strangely enough, not really. <laughs> no, I, I think I think that's it's David suggested that the scary thing is that Trump will rely on these people. Uh, when he's making crucial decisions when a crisis pops up. But I think there's no evidence that Trump will, in fact, rely on anybody whatsoever uh, except for himself when crucial decisions come up. And that, indeed, uh, gets me to uh, something we were discussing before we started recording. David, while while, while Ian, our producer, was trying to teach you how to use Skype— Thank the rest you. of us were were chatting, um, that and could David take a few <laughs>
2: hours, by the way. <laughs> well, it did. It was a,
3: it was a while. We had a long time. Ed made coffee. You know, Evelyn had a bath. Uh, <laughs> know, we were having a good time. Um, well, but 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 one of the things that David, I hope you don't mind if I I, I uh, reveal your good line. David revealed to us that that the uh, new unit of time. Uh, uh, that we should all be operating with when we discuss Trump and his advisors is the Scaramucci, the period of time in which uh, good old, the, the, the old, the mooch lasted as a member of the Trump administration, which was, which was 10 days. So one Scaramucci unit is a 10 day unit, which raised the question of how long is John Bolton going to last? How many Scaramucci's will John Bolton make it in this administration? Because another thing that we do know about Trump is he doesn't like to be upstaged by anybody. He really does not like to be upstage. He likes to be the only crazy person. He wants to be the only person who makes outrageous pronouncements and gets media attention. It really annoys him if anybody else starts to do that. So we are now, I believe we are, we are 1.5 Scaramucci's away from the day when John Bolton is scheduled to take office as national security advisor on April 9th. I think that the real question is, (laughs) Uh uh-oh. The the real question is, uh, how many Scaramucci's will he actually last once he takes over?
1: Well, by the way, I think that there is a smaller unit of time, uh, apparently, which is a a de Genoa, because the president announced on Monday that he was appointing this guy as one of his lawyers. And and he didn't even take the job uh, before it seems like he may not have the job um but
2: uh, by the way david we did get into a discussion as we were waiting for you to learn about skype about whether you could have negative Scaramuchis. in other words if you're supposed to start a job but you don't actually take it could you be like a a, a minus 0.05 Scaramucci?
1: yeah well I am, right okay so you you have you have addressed this well let me Let's go into a kind of a light. We think
2: of everything as <laughs> deep state right? We really do.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, we really do. And that's why people are coming back in record numbers to this, to this show. Um, we had 75,000 people last week come and tune into this, which is by far a record. And, um, and we expect more and more because things are getting crazier and crazier. Um, but I want to sort of go by into. By the way,
2: we call 75,000 people now a unit of one Rothkoff.
1: Thank you. Well, we call it, <laughs> let's let's just call it a unit of one deep, deep state radio, and let's let's you know we it, we
4: call it a Trump inaugural crowd. Yeah.
3: Totally.
1: <laughs> wow, that's very I, very. I painful. think that's an
3: exaggeration. I was there. I don't think there were seventy five thousand people.
1: Wow. We can call it a
3: snark.
0: A, yes. Yeah. Uh, Once exactly. I like that. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a, really that good. Is a good
1: that is a good you It has a kind of a physics <laughs> sound to it. <laughs> exactly. Um,
2: like, cool. um,
1: but but in any event, let's l- l- let's just sort of go into a little bit of a lightning ground because there are a bunch of consequences of this I would like to touch upon. And Evelyn, I don't mean to go to you with the most boring of all of these. Um, but bring it
0: on. Bring it on.
1: And I would bring it on because you're an NSC person and you've sort of seen how the process works and you've seen
0: Actually, What's that's one of the few places in, in government that I haven't worked, but I've been in the situation room many times. <laughs> well,
1: well, but, well, that uh,
0: counts. I mean, that's, so probably, <laughs>
1: and, and that's that's really what I mean. I, I sort used of, to
0: eat those free m ms you know, yeah, on a regular yeah. basis. They I'm, they have, just for those uninitiated, there are M&Ms outside the situation room door, and you scoop them out with a ladle and grab a handful before you go in. To, I, you know, I, just right. want
2: it, I just want it known that, that uh, Rose's silos are are better decorated than the sit room yeah well that's that's the sit true room but it's
3: a disappointment i mean let's face it it doesn't look nearly as much like the like the sit rooms look in the movies so no no
1: it really looks more like kind of somebody's basement but big because it is but let's just get back to this point which which i am trying to get to which It's not about the NSC in terms of National Security Council staff, per se, but the process. Um, The process really involves somebody who can bring people together, uh, get opinions, winnow those down, go to the president, present those, get choices, and implement those things. Um, All of those skill sets are skill sets that John Bolton seems to lack in one way or another, are we done with an NSC process? I mean, John Bolton was hired essentially because he's a Fox commentator. He has strong views. And Trump thinks that he's going to go on TV and say stuff about Trump that Trump likes to hear. I mean, it seems like Trump's not interested in the process. Bolton can't do the process. Are we sort of putting that all on a hold now for a bit?
0: Well, my sense is that Bolton is enough of a an insider that he'll he'll pretend that he's still having an interagency process because, I mean, the there would be, um, pr- I think, a pretty significant revolt among the, the experts. I call them experts, not deep state. You know, the people who are, who are policy experts who work in all of the agencies, in the national security agencies, and that would result then in trouble coming from Capitol Hill. So I think he'll probably keep up some kind of a charade of an interagency process, but you know the way you do that is in effect you you figure out who you give the pen to someone who's going to put forward a proposal or 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 describe all of the alternate views in such a way that there's only one outcome that's possible which is the one that you you um John Bolton favor. So he he I think he'll be savvy enough to know okay, I'm going to have my person, Joe Schmo, you know, write the paper here inside the NSC, circulate it for comment, but don't really take too many of the comments, you know, from the interagency, rather than have the paper originate from the interagency. And and just for those who don't know, I mean, a lot of times the way you generate discussion and then bring something up for decision by first the deputies, so the the the, the the number 2s in the agencies and then all the way up to the president is you you circulate a paper which is basically a policy paper that says here's the problem here are the potential ways that we can address it and then usually there's not necessarily a recommendation um of course once you get to the level of the president there is a recommendation but you know he'll he'll just try to cook the books that way i think but of course he could also just you know, have the process proceed, but still get into the Oval Office and have the last word with the president. So there's either way he's going to have an un, an undue level of influence should he choose to exercise it.
2: And predict, I predict massive leaks uh, if, in fact, the interagency process becomes a sham. The first thing he said he was going to come in and deal with was the leaks and the leakers. I think you have just seen like the leading edge. Because even in the days when John Bolton didn't have that much power, when he was uh, running the uh, arms control side of the State Department and when he was uh, ambassador to the U.N., people were leaking against him. Can you imagine it now?
1: Well, yeah. And can you imagine as sort of the the atmosphere gets darker and darker in the White House and and, and you know, in terms of investigations and other kinds of things and people start saying – Maybe I should, maybe I should, uh, you know, sort of hedge my bets and be be on a different side of this. But let me let me go, in, and I'll I'll go to you, Ed, and then and we'll go around with 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 a couple of these questions. Uh, it seems like one of the first places we may see this, and I, I'm going to go to Ed, but 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 also David afterwards on this. The the influence of this team is not North Korea because, as far as we know, that you know the North Korea stuff isn't really even happening. There's there hasn't been much of a response out of the North Koreans since the the president said that he would he would meet with them. Uh and and so that's sort of a question mark. But in the middle of May we're we're gonna come up on uh a a, 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 a deadline where the, the, the US may in fact pull out of the JCPOA with Iran. Um this is something that uh Bolton has been for it's something that Trump has said he would do it's something he apparently told Bibi he would do it's something that he that that Senator Corker thinks he's going to do, um, and that Pompeo his, wants to do and that Pompeo also wants to do so the first thing we may see is pulling out of that, and I just add first and then then david what, what do you what, what do you think the consequences of that are likely to be?
4: Well, so don't, don't forget that uh, Bolton isn't just against the JCPOA, and he wasn't just against the EU3's uh, attempts to negotiate with Iran um, during the Bush administration, um, but he has explicitly been in favor of regime change in Iran for many, many years. Uh, both arguing inside the Bush administration, uh, as David said earlier, prodding the Israelis to strike Iran, but also since um, the Bush administration consistently appearing on the most extreme platforms, um, calling for America to lead essentially a war of choice. to support those seeking regime change in Iran. Now, you know, Trump doesn't have a record of um, of, of arguing explicitly for that. Uh, he's indeed opposed to wars of choice and unnecessary entanglements. But if we get uh, uh, a withdrawal from the JCPOA, which I think was likely before Bolton was announced to replace McMaster anyway, that was on the cards. If we get that, this isn't going to be, you know, uh, the end of a chapter, the closing of a deal that was controversial. This is going to be at the opening of a very dynamic um, and deeply troubling new chapter um, in, in America's engagement with the Middle East at a time when its closest ally and Trump's best friend Mohammed bin Salman, who's, who's in, in America at the moment, the Saudi um, crown prince, is urging precisely that course of action. Um, so we are, you know, th- this is not, I don't think, hyperbole. We are the closest we have been since 2003 uh, to America preparing for and going down the path of a war of choice. I'm not predicting that will happen. Um, but uh, the odds of that happening have risen very, very sharply in the last few days.
1: Okay, David, you've been deeply immersed in this issue. What is your take?
2: Well, I think that that once I I, I think it's inevitable that the president will resume uh, the sanctions. In other words, what's going on here is that when the deal was signed in 2015, the Iranians agreed to suspend their enrichment and and any further work on on plutonium plutonium reprocessing for up to 15 years, and then there were sanctions lifted. American sanctions were suspended, some group of them, and then the European ones were. So what would happen if the president decided that the Europeans weren't serious about renegotiating the deal, and if he listened to Pompeo and he listened to Bolton, is that he would reimpose the American sanctions. So the United States would be a breach of the deal. So then the Iranians will have a choice. They could say, option one, okay, you're out of the deal? Then we're out of the deal. A deal no longer exists. Rev it up, boys, start up that enrichment again, so forth and so on. And there will be a faction— in Iran, led by the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, I th- that my guess is will argue for exactly that, because they'd want to give this stuff up but to but begin they're with.
1: Not, they're not going to do that. What is what is choice number think
2: I think choice number two, which they're much more likely to do, is cast us as the ones who are the international violators. They'll go to the Europeans, use this to divide us from the Europeans, and say that they will continue to suspend as long as Europe does not reimpose sanctions as well. Then you get to the really interesting part, because Bolton will then turn around, I would guess, and some others, and at least raise the specter that the United States would reimpose secondary sanctions. And secondary sanctions are basically saying to the European banks, if you invest in Iran, you can't do business in dollars. And that would cause a huge breach with the Europeans. My guess is that in the end, they're not going to be able to get away with that and won't be able to go do it. Uh, The other thing that could happen out here is that um, somebody will. By the the way, just as a footnote,
1: meanwhile, the United States is getting into a trade war with the Chinese who have the option of saying, you know something, we're going to sell dollars. I mean, yeah, you know, you You've got a a kind of a a precarious intersection of of things going on here. Anyway, go on, go on briefly, and then we'll go on to so that's
2: that's that's the set of options. And then the question comes: if the Iranians did actually resume any of their activities, then the Israelis or Bolton or others would resume presumably their argument for military action. That's the worst case scenario. I don't think the Iranians are going to fall for that, but. We'll see.
1: But the tensions will rise, right? So the if-
2: tensions will definitely rise. And in a moment that the markets are beginning to get a little bit uh, nervous about uh, what happens if President Trump actually does enact his, his agenda, imagine how angry he was that the markets dropped on the announcement of the tariffs. Uh, I think you could see the beginning of an, of an unwinding here.
1: Yeah. And by, and by the way, well, maybe, Rosie, you want to comment on this. And again, we've only got about five minutes. But One of the things that strikes me is that we're also at a point in the investigations where the ties to the Middle East and influence of Middle Easterners and so forth is increasing and or perception is that the scrutiny of that is increasing and that this may, in fact, color the way um, the U.S. undertaking, you know, largely sort of Saudi agenda on these things may be perceived. Um, This is, I, I guess... I have this sort of reaction to Bolton, which is he is tied, you know, tied into Cambridge Analytica and the Russians and his policies kick into other things. And I just wonder if inviting this guy into the the uh, White House doesn't open new avenues of investigation for um, uh, Robert Mueller.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, uh, and I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I mean, clearly on the surface, I, it certainly looks like if you're if you know if you're an, an ace uh, prosecutorial mind and you are looking for further things that suggest some degree of uh, bad behavior involving Russia. Let's just say let's not call it collusion, um, which as we know is not a not in any case a legal term. Um, you know that that this is this. It's it's what in 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 the law we refer to as the appearance of impropriety. And if you're a judge, or uh, you can get in trouble for the mere appearance of impropriety. It certainly adds to the appearance of impropriety whether or not there is in fact uh, uh, a fire behind the smoke. We we don't know. Um, I mean, my guess, frankly, is that Mueller's got his hands full, uh, and this is is you know unlikely to be a a significant shift for him because he's already got so much he's, he's looking at. Um, but who knows?
1: Well, but, but Evelyn the Cambridge Analytica thing seems like an area which is, is going to get a lot of attention. Yeah. And, 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 and bolds in that with both feet, it seems.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was actually quite surprised to see, that he was involved um, because, I mean, it's one of these things like, come on, can't Trump pick people who, who don't have these kind of nefarious Russia connections? I mean, you know, if you look at his cabinet, okay, we lost Tillerson, but there's still Wilbur Ross. And I mean, so so again, it's, it's another kind of, um, I don't even know, hand-wringing is probably too tame of a way, uh, you know, head-bashing. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do when I hear this. Um, except, you know, the fallback it, is, okay, uh, you know, Mueller's looking at it. But it, it doesn't look good. I mean, the guy knew, he, he first of all, why is a former ambassador running a pack? This gets back to the big money and the Supreme Court decision, you know. I mean, I could be running a PAC, I guess, too, but, you know. The
2: difference, Evelyn, is you weren't, you didn't harbor ideas of running for president. He did, and that's what the pack comes from. Right. You know, it comes back from his thought before Trump came along, that he was going to be a candidate for president of the United States. And the PAC still exists because uh, I've been getting emails from it until a few weeks ago.
1: Um, well, you know, Evelyn, I know what you should do about this. You should write well, a deep
0: state PAC. No, <laughs> you know,
2: deep state pack.
3: Now you're talking. Oh, that is awesome. And that we could
2: shorten trip. it up and just call it deep pack. I
0: love
1: it. It is. I think I think that's a brilliant idea. No, the idea that I was you need to write a book about how the hard right in the Republican Party became part of Vladimir Putin's movement. I mean, somebody has got to explain this to me. How did this happen? Where did we go from all the people who were sort of raised on being anti-Russian, anti-communist, anti-Kremlin, anti anti you know, they were the most virulent. They were crazy. They were against people going around raising money for UNICEF because they were commies. And all of a sudden, they're all in bed with them. When did that happen?
0: I don't know. I have to say that some of the people in in the American public at large have picked up on this because yesterday at the uh, March for Our Lives there was an African-American gentleman holding a sign. It was awesome. It said, Vladimir Putin, please tell President Trump to ban automatic weapons. That's great. That's
2: um, hey, David, can we say one, so that we have one thing on this recording in, in, in defense of, of John Bolton? In defense of John Bolton, even when uh, President Trump had his first meeting in Hamburg with um, uh, with Vladimir Putin, Uh, the column that Bolton wrote right after that was, I'm glad he sat down and met him so that he would understand how it is to be lied to by the Russians directly to your face. So Bolton has retained, at least in what he has written, his sort of hardline um, anti-Russia approach. And I think the most interesting thing to go watch in the relationship with Trump is what happens when that collides with Donald Trump's inability to say anything bad about Vladimir Putin.
1: Okay, um, we've got we've got time for two one minute responses here. Ed, what's the thing about John Bolton that we that we haven't discussed that worries you the most?
4: that we haven't discussed. Well, I um, mean, I guess somebody referenced the Cuba biological stuff. I mean, he's capable of just producing things out of nowhere um, uh, as pretext to war. Um, his, his psychology is um, uh, is warlike. I mean, I don't know how, how, how else to put it. Um, and we've discussed that, so I'm not being original, but it does profoundly worry me.
1: All right. And to, and finally, and I want to end this on an up note, because there was all of this John Bolton stuff and the Pompeo stuff. And there was, um, uh, you know, and, and, and soon and this we're recording this before the Stormy Daniels storm um, this evening um, and whatever else falls out of this. But but yesterday there was this amazing um, e- explosion of leadership from. Uh, young people, led by the Parkland young people, but 820 plus different demonstrations around the world, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps upwards of a million people in Washington D.C. In that crowd, Evelyn indicated she was in there. I know you were there, Rosa, and I just—I was. Just give 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 us give us your take on on what the potential and what it meant to you, and what the significance was.
3: No, I was amazing. I was there with my 13 year old daughter. Um, and, you know, I think I think for one thing, it's just incredibly powerful for her to see that kids her own age, barely older than than she uh, can can stand up and and speak for themselves and decide that they're going to try to help galvanize a movement and there was a real sense of of they are galvanizing a movement a lot of these kids are too young to vote most of these kids are too young to vote most of these kids are going to be too young to vote even in the next presidential election many in many cases you know it's going to be a while but but that these are kids who are getting a sense of themselves as people who can make change and getting a sense of themselves as people who need to care. You know, and I think the, the, the toughest thing, and I, I would say this to all of our deep state folks, you know, that probably all of our listeners are, ready, are already registered to vote. If you're not, you shouldn't be listening to us. You should go out right now and figure out how you get registered to vote and how you get all of your friends to register to vote. I think the thing that makes it hard to persuade young people in particular sometimes to vote when they become old enough is that they feel like oh i'm just one person out of millions what difference can it possibly make and and part of what's so powerful about marches like that is that you have this visible physical representation of lots and lots of one people one person standing there together and how big that crowd is you know and how powerful it can be when people do stand together you know and you you get a sense of i could have stayed home today but i came and everybody else here could have stayed home today but they came and look at us we're filling up this city with hopeful kids who care about the world and are listening and watching the news and reading the news and want to do something about it you know and and if 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 a fraction of those kids end up re- actually registering and actually going out there and voting you know it can make an enormous difference in the future of this country so it was it was very exciting it was very it was very poignant and sad listening to you know 11 year olds talk about the gun deaths of their siblings um but it was also incredibly inspiring listening to these kids themselves too young to vote saying to each other when we're old enough, we have to fix this. The adults have screwed up. Uh, it's our turn. We, we have to make change.
1: And I think that's I think that's right. And I think that's a, uh, a you know, not just a hopeful note to 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 frame this conversation, um, which sounded a lot like an existential scream for much of it. Um, but uh, but but it's the reality. There is a time limit on Trump's presidency. There is a time limit, maybe measured in Scaramucci's or negative Scaramucci's, on Bolton's tenure as national security advisor. There are risks associated with that. Um, But the rising generation is going to be around for a long time. And when you listen to 11-year-old Naomi Wadler stand up and talk, you know, seriously about the undercoverage of the loss of uh women of color, girls of color in, in 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 this violence, and speak with greater insight and character and gravitas uh, and eloquence than the President of the United States has ever spoken. Uh, and then you have people like Emma Gonzalez from uh Parkland High School who, in their silence, say more than the president has ever said with all his words and tweets. Then you see that something can change in the long term that can be positive. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will be of some comfort. I'm sure Rosa has been doing this entire broadcast from under her bed. Um, and she may remain there for the duration. But but you'll come out afterwards, right, Rosa? I'll come out when my
3: kids are old enough to vote. Yeah, did, well, did
0: I have to intro, in, interject because I've heard the kids correct people when they call the school the wrong name, they're very proud that it's the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School because of her legacy. Just Google it on Wikipedia. So it's not the Stone, whatever you call it, the Parkland High School.
1: Well, I said the Parkland kids, but yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm just
0: trying to preempt the tweeting.
1: Well, yeah, let's preempt the tweeting. I want all the tweeting that follows this to be about Deep State pack. Um, let's yeah,
0: exactly, and snark. You know that,
2: that is probably the best business plan for a podcast I think I've ever heard.
1: It, no, no, I think it's fantastic. Donate to Deep State Pack uh, and get a free get a mug. set of Rosa color, Rosa colored glasses. Um, uh, which, by the way, people have shown pictures of that on the internet. What they think that looks like. So. You know, that's that's something to work on. Uh, This special episode is going to go up uh, soon. You're hearing it once it's gone up. But the next episode will be at its usual time, I think, uh, going up on Wednesday night. And I'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss then. Meantime, thank you to David and Ed and Rosa and Evelyn for getting up early on a Sunday morning. Uh, Have a good remainder to your weekend. And uh, we'll see you all again here at Deep State Radio.